Hello, and welcome to another episode of Exit Point. Laurent couldn't make this one today, but joining me is Taylor Cole. Taylor is a studied mathematician and a scientist by trade. He is the CTO of the Southern California Navy Lab and is part of a very select group of people who have been asked to participate in the Navy's national security think tank. He's a member of the U.S. parachute team, and oh, did I mention he base jumps as well. You may know him from crew jumping in Southern California or organizing the mustache boogie. I consider him to be one of the big thinkers of our generation, and we're lucky to have him in our community and on the show. So without further ado, let's get Taylor Cole on the track. Okay, so uh, first question for you. Do you mind if we start in a very strange way? Yes, of course. I love strange conversations. (laughs) So uh, Taylor Cole, uh, what is the strangest way that you've been paid to come up with where in which the world ends. Like where, yeah, I know that you've, you've been paid to like, uh, analyze world ending scenarios. Uh, so what's the strangest one that, that you've had to come up with? Oh man. So yeah, I got asked by someone very senior in the Navy once to write a doom and gloom. How would you destroy America type paper? And uh, I did a lot of research and I got to go explore and talk to these people to do it. And I ended up doing something that was in line with what I called societal puppetry. And what it was, was what if you committed a crime that you didn't care to see the effect of that crime within your time frame, within your time that you're on this earth? And maybe if your son or your daughter actually had to see the outcome of the crime, you know, could the FBI, the CIA, police ever catch you? And the answer is no. So what I came up with is, is basically using, um, using, uh, 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 basically taking DNA and changing the way that, um, that you, that you, uh, affect food and make it to where food itself is actually second generation male infertility. You know, this is something that came out of human genome project. This is, this is the idea oh that you can God. use stem cells and you can actually change the human body. <laughs> And so my whole plan, just to make it a short, short conversation, my whole plan was what if you affected all the rich people's shopping centers? So if you (laughs) you affected all the vegetable in very high end shopping centers, and now the second generation of that, that high, you know, paid um, um, generation of Americans um, wouldn't be able to have kids, right? So now, now you'd have a blending, you'd have a blending of two different, a blending of two different societies and it absolutely would at least hiccup uh, America if not destroy it. So that's pretty fun. Okay. This is equal parts scary and entertaining. Uh, first, uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, scary. You, you asked. The, yeah. My God, dude, like somebody's out there like plotting some infinite game to like end the world. And we have no idea because the consequences will be like far beyond our ability to like actually comprehend and entertaining in the sense that like you got paid to come up with that. (laughs) Absolutely. It's all about time horizons. Like Americans are now more like in the now, right? We want instant gratification. But what if we didn't care about that? And we said, as long as my daughter gets to see the radness of my exploits and crime, you know, I'm stoked because I know that she's going to see the value of that and then she's going to continue. So it's pretty scary. Oh my God. Okay. More on, more (laughs) 
<laughs> more on that in the in a future uh, interview with Taylor Cole, and just let that uh, one bit uh, serve as like a kind of a characterization of how unique this human being is. Uh, maybe we can get just briefly before we get into instant gratification and base jumping. Can we get briefly into some of the jobs that you've held uh, so that like we can give context to how strangely we just like entered this interview? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I just started in college before that. I just did mechanic, wiener, sitzel, bowling alley, chef, <laughs> use chef. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> well, you're wearing a hat. So like you're a chef, I guess. <laughs> yeah, perfect. <laughs> So <laughs> came out of college, started working for the Navy, um, did predictive analysis, human behavior work, uh, basically ran the, the Navy's big thinking team that deployed with all of our brigades that, that went to Iraq and Afghanistan, ta- basically a tactical mathematician. And I was running that group, uh, went on to become uh, um, a technology fellow within the, uh, the uh, strategic studies group, which was a, a big think tank that worked directly for the CNO, head of the Navy. Um, came back from that and now I'm, uh, running research and development for a Navy lab, which is fantastic. Uh, I went back at some point during that time to get my master's degree in fluid mechanics cause I was flying wingsuits and they weren't flying very well. So I wanted to uh, <laughs> figure out how to make them fly better. So everything's been Naturally. tangled. Everything I've done has been tangled together with base jumping at some point or another. Yeah, that's a that's an interesting uh, way of going about that. Most, uh, I think, innovation in parasport has uh, gotten there just based on people smoking weed around a campfire and going like, hey, should we hug <laughs> this out of a plane? Let's see what happens. But fluid mechanics, that, I mean, that sounds like a more efficient way to go about it. <laughs> oh, I do. I do both. Believe me, I, I am. I am equal crazy as I am nerd. So it's 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 the combination that, that drives me to do what I do. Oh my God. Well, uh, let's get into why you do what you do. Um, where in this like trajectory of your career did you start base jumping and, and why did you start doing that? Yeah, it's a pretty good story. I mean, I was always an extreme athlete, you know, from early, early on. Um, I think eight, I was 18 when I was 22nd in the world in ASA skate tour stuff on rollerblades vert ramp. Um, you know, I was, I was in X games, uh, Oh one with uh, ACL surgery. So I wasn't able to compete. Uh, I did, uh, at least five or six different big wall climbs back before I even went to college, uh, L cap touchstones, Ion. um, sick, just a lot of, a lot of good stuff. And then, and then ended up, uh, just getting so hurt from skating. It was before the resi mat before the foam pit. Oh um, yeah. Go big or go home. Sometimes. Days. Yeah, sometimes there's innovation that happens that really changes the game. And I got out before any of that. So to go eight feet out on a vert ramp and throw a 540, you had to destroy yourself over yeah. and over again at lower heights. Um, so, yeah, and then I just ended up in skydiving in 2005 with my my girlfriend. Uh, first, I don't know, 30 jumps and I hated it. I thought everybody was um, into the party. They were into this, you know, I fell off an airplane. I'm the coolest dude, the coolest chick on the planet. <laughs> oh man. I got a, I got a note on that one. Having come from all of those, uh, different sports that you've mentioned as well. I, I find that skydivers are somehow like the least proficient at what they do. And yet most self-assured. Yes. That is so well put. It's just like, I couldn't even party with these guys that were like, I fell off an airplane. Now I'm going to go score all these women at this party. And I'm like, damn, Damn. Like, you know, 
at that point, I had both knees surgery on. I broke my back once already. I've had 12 concussions. I had to be walked around school because I lost all short-term memory on one of them. And it's oh, like, no. but by the time I get to skydiving, I'm like, you guys didn't earn shit. You guys are yeah. all just falling out of an airplane and partying like you guys are the, the beasts of the, the world. shit, dude. Oh, my God. Oh, God. You know, and it's interesting <laughs> as well that we both got into that sport because we can we thought that it was low impact. We're like, wow, this looks so low impact. Like all of it happens in clear airspace. <laughs> it's so true. It's so true. And then you forget about how hard the earth hits you, right? It's like, yep. oh man. Yeah. And yeah. nowadays how hard that parachute opening is in base, man, my God. Okay. So back on point, um, why did you get into base jumping specifically? So yeah, I was, I was low number skydiver. Um, Jeff Nebelkoff took me on my first wingsuit jump when I had a hundred jumps, um, had a cutaway on that one. That's Taylor style, hundred percent. And then, um, yeah, I just didn't like skydiving. So I got into base jumping, um, base 17, you know, uh, Matt McCarter. I just bothered him every, every day until he finally taught me to pack. I showed up every Sunday for months. And eventually he took me to the bridge. And I remember when I was at the bridge, I did a handheld on my first jump and Tom Ayala comes up and, and he's like, Hey, uh, he's watching me pack. He's like, I, I need to talk to you. Cause that pack job is dangerous. And, Ooh. and I was like, Oh man, well, my mentor is right around the building. Why don't you go talk to him? And, and yeah. if you guys want me to change, I'll change. And so he walks around, he comes back. He's like, okay, you don't have to change your pack job. Your mentor is the absolute balls of the wall best. But he goes, as soon as you're off his mentorship, let me teach you a different way to pack. And huh. he kind of had a point because Matt McCarter had taught me a zigzag pack job, which nobody in base uses. Basically take your B's, pass your A's, and then flick them. So your your pack job does a S all the way up. What? Yeah. So I did my first 20, 25 jumps on, you know, base 17 type methodology for how to pack, which oh was my a little, God. A little outdated, but it worked. It worked. Yeah. But then I changed right at, right after I got out. Man. So it's just scary to look at like the original science of just total observation and just like kind of, you know, seeing if it worked, I think this will work. It's, and then after crazy. it works, you're like, well, it worked. <laughs> it worked. So yeah, oh I got about God. 250 base jumps when I had a hundred skydives. And then that's when the epic story of all epic stories for everybody I hang out with now, which is, uh, I got invited out to a crew jump out at, uh, skydive Paris. And when I showed up out, there were 250 base jumps, a hundred skydives. Uh, they had one of their worst wraps and there was uh, three cutaways and Frank, was under two parachutes and a down plane and, and sorted it out 50 feet above the ground, hit the oh ground super God. hard. And then I ended up getting his canopy off the roof of the nearby building. And, um, yeah, that's what I was like, this is my sport. And so yeah. as, fr as Frank was slowly getting out of the sport, I, I snuck in and shortly after that we got Will Kiddo and that was the start of, you know, two wrapped up in blazing glory. Yeah, man, let's get into some crew training because I feel like this is a discipline that is like fallen by the wayside in most uh, areas. And I think not because it's like not something super fun because, man, I enjoy the hell out of it. But I think it's falling by the wayside because it takes up so much airspace. And so like a lot of drop zones really aren't stoked on crew because they'd rather be running too many tandems. And so like, yo, can we get into a little bit of the crew, uh, you know, discipline and also your experience in there? Because 
I believe you have a little bit. <laughs> yeah, for for sure. And and you are right. It is hard on airspace. Um, it's basically taking, you know, a crew canopy is your standard one is the lightning, you know, a seven cell F one eleven, you know, um, no, it's it's ZP, but it's a seven cell um, you know, just very square parachute. Um, and then basically, you know, crashing it into each other and learning how to fly relative to another, another person. So, um, at first it seems like it's dangerous and, and yeah, you hear all these stories of us having bad raps, um, but we're really pushing the limits of this sport. And, um, and what we do on the U S parachute team or the big way stuff is next level right now in the sim, I believe you can pass, uh, uh, your B license by doing a crew jump, um, which is, uh, which is such a good thing because really you should be getting into crew as soon as you could jump a one-to-one -one parachute um, because that's, that's what we've got. So you've got your major drop zones that are doing it, Elsinore and, and um, Delmarva. Uh, you've got your raw dogs, which is what everybody needs to look up, you know, just search raw dogs crew online and they'll give you all the uh, ability to go to a pup camp and go learn how to fly your parachute relative to other parachutes. And as you can guess, this is extremely valuable to anybody in base jumping. Yeah, totally. Because like most of the time people come from skydiving having never like flown and to anything relative. And so now all of a sudden they're forced into a scenario where there's terrain and trees and, you know, <laughs> all of this stuff around them. And it's really hard to judge their inputs based on these relative markers because they've never done it before. It's like, you know, if you were to walk around in the matrix loading zone and then all of a sudden you get thrust into the city and you're like, I don't even know how fast I've been walking. <laughs> yep. I don't, I don't know how far that act, that distance is from building. Can I jump that whole street? Who knows? <laughs> yeah. It's crazy. Cause like every discipline we got in skydiving and base is all about everything, but the parachute, you know, and it's, and it's just absurd because the, what's in base that really hurts everybody is the parachute. You know, it's, it's the, it's that thing opening in the wrong direction. It's where you put yourself off of the cliff and what corner of the, of the cliff band you're, you're in and what options you give yourself. And, you know, we have this conversation, which, you know, my teammate and I will kiddo and I love to joke about the toggles versus risers. And it's, yeah. it's such a dumb conversation because totally. you have, if you've done, if you've done crew, you'd realize that's just a nonsensical conversation. Um, they're different inputs. At different times. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's. I, I would like to point out this uh, this piece of the conversation so we can close this subject entirely. Based on what you just said, anyone debating this from here forward just needs to <laughs> shut the fuck up. Right? It's not toggles or risers; they're different things entirely. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. And hopefully, you know, we'll get into some games we've played to learn both those and um, and and finding out, you know, what the ability of both is. But if people could come out and do crew, you'll learn relative to somebody else what your toggles and risers do. So like when we teach students and we line them up next to each other on the first jump and we're like, OK, I'm going to do a toggle input, you know, like a quarter flare. And you basically go up and behind. And then that student does the same thing up and behind. Okay, I'm going to do a rear riser and you basically, you, you got these inputs that, that affect exactly where you go relative to that student. And they realize, oh, that's how I get back. That's how I get up and back. That's so your toggles are your most efficient way to get, you know, to, to, to stay up. Right. But then your rear riser just takes you back and yeah. you're like, okay, well, these are totally different abilities. That's why a rear riser turn away from a cliff. You're going to drop more altitude. 
you know, you're, you're basically going to turn a parachute that you're, you're using a, a good third of the parachute to turn with not the efficient tails, right? You know, you're basically changing the whole flying profile of this whole thing. And it's like, whoa, okay, I'm going to come around, Yeah, but it's useful. It's extremely useful. So let's get into some of the crew training, because I know that part of your training is to become an intuitive flyer of the parachute, not actually analyzing whether I should go to toggles or risers, just like I want to go there. And then without thinking about it, grabbing onto the proper input. So like, how do you go from somebody trying to decide toggles versus risers to somebody who's just going, I want to go there? Yeah, exactly. And I don't know, I like to always talk about Malcolm Gladwell and talking about 10,000 hours, right? And, um, you know, I talked to all my teammates and said, hey, do, do you all feel like you intuitively fly the parachute? And uh, what I mean by that is you're not thinking about at all what you're pulling. You're just going where you want to go. You could think of this in a whole bunch of sports, right? Um, we have all gotten to that point, you know, so, you know, yes, it takes 3,500 skydives and a thousand base jumps for me, but for other people, it's it's in that 10,000 hour range when you start actually getting intuition of what you're doing and it's a game changer. So now how do you get there? Can you get some perspective or some some smaller scale of, of pure intuition, you know, in 500 jumps? And the answer is absolutely. So you come out and you do crew with us. And like I said, we'll, we'll practice next to each other and show input, 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 match, 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 match. Then we'll go into where you center dock Okay. And when we work with students, you know, as, as the instructor that's working with a student, I'm flying my parachute as well. So I can make it to where I can dock backwards on you and make you feel good about what you're doing. So you're getting that input of what it is that you do. But it, as an example, if you're coming in with a lot of speed and you go to your toggles, you're probably going to shoot up into me and, and, and wad <laughs> me up, right? Because it's in a, back to this conversation, it's an yep. efficient way for the parachute to, to go up and turn. And, um, and so we teach people, you know, what to do with this. And there's this fantastic, uh, video that just came out a couple of weeks ago. I was working with a student on teaching them really hardcore rotations, you know, four parachutes stacked top guy comes off docks on the bottom as fast as you can. Will and I are teaching the next level of that, getting into a very, very, um, steep dive, you know, perpendicular, like parallel to the, the ground, you and your parachute. And then what do you do to clean that up and dock on the bottom? And uh, teaching new people that have crew skills how to do this new skill is hard. You know, we spent yeah. 20 jumps with really capable people. But one of the funny ones was this guy was coming down and I told him, hey, take your toggles and blast them down to your belly button and blast them up as fast as you can. And what it does is it sends a ripple through your parachute and kills off the performance, right? It doesn't do anything. It just makes it stop flying so well. And so here he comes diving in on me and I see him and he just does it too slow. He goes full toggles down, full toggles up, and then wads me. And all I see is par is parachute and he's just dangling at the bottom of a three stack. <laughs> so it's it's amazing teaching people to fly parachutes, but it's just such a different game. And and until you come do it and you explore the rad uh you know culture of crew jumping and all the cool people that do it, it's just a fascinating way to get intuitively flying your parachute. Man, okay, so I, I've got something else to add on the intuitive flying, but first, uh, I'm really, I really appreciate how comfortable all y'all are with getting wrapped up. In fact, you've even <laughs> named your team that, and I feel like it uh, kind of 
characterizes your approach to dangerous situations. Like most people are afraid to get wrapped up, so they avoid it, right? And it seems like your team like nearly trained to do that. Like, you're like let's go out and wrap yep. each other in every possible way because like if we're just good at getting wrapped, then like who cares? <laughs> It's so true. Well, there's one thing that I want everybody to understand, especially since most base jumpers are listening to this. Your reserve is the best packed base rig you've ever had, right? So if you're afraid to use your reserve, you're kind of misunderstanding how how high quality that backup is, right? So that's the first thing. Like we, everybody on my team, most of us anyway, have cut away on purpose many times. And, um, and you're basically just getting a, a, a free ride out of a different parachute. And so it's just, it's fantastic when you start learning how parachutes work. Uh, the joke was, uh, you know, Will uh, um, made a bet with me once and said, hey, Taylor, I, I bet you can't get a reserve for a hundred bucks. And I bet you can't get it <laughs> shipped today. And I was like, dang it. Okay, I'm on this. So I got on Facebook. I was like, anybody have a reserve that will fly for a hundred bucks? And so uh, my friend out at uh, uh, Skydive New England called me up. And he's like, uh, or Scott, I have Newport. And he goes, hey, I got a, a pink cricket. You know, and I, I think it's like early 90s, really crappy reserve. And he's like, I'll get in the mail today. And I was like, dude, nice. awesome. Mail. I forgot I had it in my rig. And we went to two different world championships. And I had this pink cricket. <laughs> and by, by that point, we had gotten pretty good that we weren't having cutaways all the time. So I never really actually got a cutaway of this pink cricket. So when I got back, I was doing a jump with Cassie Hero and teaching her crew. And when she was docked on me, I chopped. You know, we were at like, Whoops, I don't know, 2,500 yeah. feet. Whoa. And I chopped and and she looks up. She goes, what are you doing? You're sitting on my slider. And I was like, yeah, <laughs> I'm sitting on your slider. <laughs> and she's like, what are you doing? And I was like, I'm just, I'm going to fly this pink cricket. Like, why oh not? Oh my God, dude. <laughs> but, I, but I needed the drop zone to know that I had some sort of malfunction, right? And right. like- Except that we posted the picture on Instagram of me sitting on her slider, you know, with my main gone. <laughs> so oh, at like 1,500 man. feet, I fly the reserve and uh, and it was genius. And I ended up selling it for 150 bucks to somebody because I said that it works. When? Oh, test pilot, Taylor Cole. Yeah, it, ga- <laughs> it, it, it gained value because of that test flight. We might have to start something online where uh, people like send you their old parachutes. They have no idea, right? Like what's what the deal is with them. Maybe Let's they're fly from it. like some bygone era and just let you like recertify them live. <laughs> <laughs> That's perfect. So, okay. Back, uh, back to point. And man, actually touching, just touching on something that you said, I think is interesting. Most people do not trust their reserves. And I think it's because A, they never fly them and B, they never see them packed. And if you don't know, it's like witchcraft in the bag, basically. Yeah. Uh, so I think it's kind of strange that like skydiving is the only sport that I've ever been a part of where you don't execute the like base level contingency in some controlled way. Like exactly. no one ever has a cutaway until like they're under duress and they don't even know if the system works because they've never tried it. Yeah, you know, that's crazy. That's crazy. And then it's this unknown when it's come when it's time to do it. So. Right. Can you imagine I mean, like learning just... to scuba dive and, and no one telling you what to do, like in a, uh, like a regulator failure or like never training that in a pool, like where somebody like rips your mask off and you've got to like sort shit out. Yep. Yeah. And this, this gets back to like, I think what you look for when you first asked, it's, it's, you know, coming up with drills and drilling things to, to make it to where you learn a skill. Yeah. And so like that, back that's to that, key. 
Yeah, back to that. I, I know that you guys employ a lot more gameplay than I've ever seen in any other training regiment ever. Like mm-hmm. I, pretty much like when I see you and Will like jump together, you're almost always playing some game, even if it's like just an informal Absolutely. one that you make up on the cliff. So can you tell us Absolutely. about uh, gameplay in your training regiment and like how that also um, adds to intuitive understanding? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I mean, so per, just to put it in perspective, when you, you we just got second in the world in uh, four way rotations and skydiving, right? And we and uh, we were up there with the highest competitors that are full sponsored. That's their full time job, and we got like maybe forty jumps last year. So uh, and brief so, briefly, we have to just touch on this because uh, we haven't already. Uh, two wrapped up is the world team. Yeah, we're we're the rotations for rotations discipline. Yeah, we are on the U.S. parachute team. Gotcha for a long time now. So, yeah, so most people think of us as like the bad news bears, like, you know, like we don't even have uniforms and uh, and we could <laughs> we can we can play at the same level as the Russians and the Belarusians and the French and the Qataris. And it really comes down to just um, the way that we've played in what we do. It was never a, a job. It was something that was just fun for us. So, yes, it's taken 3000 crew rotations jumps. Right. So that's. 3000 of exactly the same jump. Like you can imagine doing a four way discipline skydive and doing the same jump 3000 times, how good you're going to be. So we've, we've always made it about games. Like when we have trouble getting close, we play the game of how, um, every time you clip your center cell on the top guy's corner of his parachute, you get a point. And then, and then, and then, which is dodgy as shit. Like I am not kidding. (laughs) It is a hundred out of a hundred scary. And, um, and yeah, we just got good at it. You know, Will came up with it and we're just like, boom, 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 boom. You know, Will and I have been racing on pack jobs now, you know, forever. And we just posted up on our Facebook, you know, a two minute pack job. And, um, and then we throw our rigs at each other, whoever finishes first. Well, we've been doing that forever. And so <laughs> most people are like, oh man, you know, that pack job's not going to open straight. Nope. That's actually my guaranteed to open on heading as best as I can pack job. We've just gamed it so much that it's a two minute pack job. Yeah, You know, like Will and I were joking, we could make, if the team was all me and Will, we could make every plane without having a Packer, you know, just when the next, when that plane gets back down, we'll get back on it. So, and then when we went into base, it was the, it was the same thing. You know, when Will and I started, it was, it was seven cell, um, you know, non-vented like ACE, you know, these, these kind of parachutes and they flew like crap. And so we were doing a lot of our test jumping out at Rubido. And so we would just make games, even with the non-vented parachutes, um, to try to figure out, you know, how can we learn to fly this thing better? What's, so a what's lot one of, the, of those? Yeah, a lot of the boogies would always include one of these games. So some of my favorites were, um, uh, I'd bring pantyhose out and we would drop uh, glow sticks in them and you'd have to drop the pantyhose inside the hoop. And so <laughs> it obviously started like the hoop was pretty far away from the cliff. Then all of a sudden it was like, okay, we're putting the hoop really close. And so most everybody would jump off 180 foot cliff. They would drop their pantyhose as they're like, as they're opening, because that's where the hoop was. Yeah. And all of a sudden I come in and Will comes in and we're both rear riser stalling, you know, until <laughs> we get down to like 20 feet. And then we're releasing the rear riser stall and both of ours, I think his were exactly in the hoop and mine was like four inches away from it. Nice. Um, so it's that kind of game. We had one where we brought out big 24 inch balloons, 180 foot cliff. And then we would hang them on strings. The first one would be at like hundred feet. The next one would be like 75, next one, 50, 25. And we put them in a big arc. And this whole time you're, you're on a 180 foot static line jump, but now all of a sudden you have to fly your parachute 
like really fast and you yeah. have to do it in a way that's like really dodgy, like a big arc. And, um, there was one that we set up that will was the only one that clicked, kicked the first balloon. And, uh, yeah, he was, he was like doing a warp off. So he basically, as soon as his parachute starts open, he's grabbing front riser and opposite toggle and basically decreasing the size of his parachute to where it's just inefficient and falling and, uh, able to do ridiculous stuff. Then as Vince started coming in, you know, we had this, the kiddie pool out there and the slip and slide, there was this big shift from coming in under a swoop and trying to get into the kiddie pool to all of a sudden, everybody had big vented canopies like OSPs and, um, vented blackjacks and, um, you know, those kind of parachutes. And all of a sudden we're like, Whoa, people are strolling it out at 50 feet. That was the way to get into the pool. Yeah. So I have all these pictures of people in full stalls, 50 feet off the deck above a pool that is like two and a half feet of water. My favorite was the Velcro wall. That one was oh, my yeah. favorite game of like, they had this uh, dodgy. Was, yeah. Oh my God. Was it 20, 20, 25 feet, something like that? Like dodgy. Tall, like Velcro wall and you wore a, a pile suit. Uh, and then, you know, you jump off the cliff and try and swoop and stick yourself on this wall. And if you hit it too high, then the whole wall would topple down. You know, so you, <laughs> And and you you have one mistake in there that makes it even dodgier. You're jumping with the hook on your suit. Oh, that's and right. You're yeah. hitting the pile, so all your handles, including your Velcro toggles and your cutaway handle, are you all sticking to, to the suit. <laughs> <laughs> okay, uh, on on competition, uh, if we're gonna like recommend com- competition, which I, I highly. I highly think we're, we're doing and, and that is the right move. Yes. Um, can you give us some insight into healthy competitive mindset? Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, it, it, I can't even tell you how much fun we've had as, as a team, even when we got dead last place in nationals, you know, it was the best environment. You know, we showed up there, we drank a bunch of beer and, and we just had so much fun trying to do our best and seeing how we stacked against other people in a competitive format. Um, and then as we got better and better with hundreds and then eventually thousands of jumps, um, you start earning your way to this higher level of skill that is that, that because we're human, we don't ever give ourselves credit for it. You just all of a sudden end up somewhere where you're like, whoa, I just won nationals, you know, and I think we're like eight time national skydiving champions right now. And it's like, oh man, now all of a sudden we're at Worlds and, and, you know, we're getting our butts kicked there, but then we got third, then we got second, right? So it's always about this. You know, when we went to China to do the base jump off the glass bridges over there, the competition over there, um, same thing. It's just, it's just camaraderie at the highest level. And then, and then, yeah, you're trying to land on a target. You're trying to do the best tricks and, um, and it just brings out the best of everybody. It doesn't have to be this cutthroat competition. So mustache boogie was that it was just ridiculousness. Like how ridiculous can we be? Um, and drinking tons of everything, you know, and everybody's very minimally sober at some point. And it's like, here's a pool and a slip and slide. And it was so fun. And of all people that was in charge of safety of this group that is following none of the rules of how you should actually be doing extreme sports (laughs) is Annie Hellowell. So she's, She's making sure everybody's got gear on and they're doing right. But most fun ever just going to this competition. And the one year that Will, well, Will won two years, but the one year that he won, I disqualified him because um, I was pretty sure he was a robot and was no longer Will. <laughs> and so 
I believe Joe Nesbitt. Yeah, Joe Nesbitt won that year because Will got disqualified for not being able to prove he was not a robot. That's, that's a hard thing to prove. You know, I, yeah. I bet at some place in Will's mind, he's like, I might be a robot. Probably, one of the most open minded people be. I know. <laughs> yeah, he might be. So, what yeah. was the. What was the statement that you guys used to make about the prizes in the competition? There was like one like introductory statement about like the uh, the games are mostly made up and the prizes are something else, like, you know. <laughs> I forget. I forget who was saying that, but yeah. It was like, uh, it was like uh, before you start competing here, just realize that uh, these games are mostly made up and the prizes are insignificant. <laughs> Yeah, the prizes don't matter. That's yeah. what I would say. You're going to see people femur and tib fib and, you know, go all in and there's really nothing to win. Like, right. You know, I, I have a picture in my office that's like, you know, the biggest thing ever because, you know, Todd from Apex comes out and for the longest time it was always, you know, um, it was always the main people that were helping us out and, and, and there was no real prizes and I would raise just enough money to blow it all on stuff. You know, we had Sammy the Dwarf come out and fire a flamethrower oh we had a, a yeah. one of the top tattoo artists in the in the country come out and the only rule was you had to get a mustache tattoo somewhere so uh one of our friends put a mustache on the portrait of one of his ex-girlfriends that was on his arm so i thought that was fantastic a lot of our friends were running around with lip you know mustaches and finger mustaches we had a hookah yeah, bar come out crotch mustaches just, oh man just crazy crazy so all in the sake of competition <laughs> all because so, we want to compete uh, along with the competitive edge, I've got another um, question about uh, competition, and that's how do you show up as a teammate? Y you have a pretty long-standing team that has worked together year in, year out, and have been successful, wildly successful. And I have to believe that some of that is how you show up for one another. Do you have any like keys to success when it comes to um, interacting with your teammates? Yeah, absolutely. And I think any any base jumper on this this podcast knows that as soon as you have that epic adventure with somebody, that person has that close connection to you forever. So you can imagine um, having a team. And if you were to only base jump with the same three people, how strong that would get. Um, it's the same thing in, in our skydiving team. You know, we, we went through so much shit to get to the point where we were. Uh, we lost a teammate um, early on from a, from a crew accident that, um, that, that he died. And I'm sure we could talk about that at some point. Um, I had some of the worst wraps and cutaways you could ever imagine. I had PTSD and uh, couldn't go below 5,000 feet um, in any sort of crew formation for about six months. Um, so by the time we get through all this stuff, we are just closer and closer and closer. Uh, it doesn't even take some of our stories where one of us is saving another one's life. Um, it just takes that discipline that you're putting into working together. And all of a sudden you end up with something that's extremely valuable. So you know, when most people see me and Will together, it's pretty funny. We're like the, we're like the yin and yang, like totally different in the way that we think, but it's, oh, yeah. hilari it's hilarious how we both get on same object together and, and jump off stuff. Cause we've been on a team together for, um, let's see, since 2000, we figured like 2010, so 12 years. Yeah, man. I, I think that speaks highly of both of your open-mindedness which i've mentioned before but yeah i can see you both interacting in a lot of situations uh very differently you know like complete like seeing the situation almost completely opposite of one another and yet still getting along and cooperating and executing very well it's like 
Yeah, it's it's yeah, entertaining. I, it's yeah. I, I would I would I would think Will would agree with this, but I, Will and I are pretty equally talented and equally skilled on uh, on flying parachutes with intuition. Totally. Um, but then uh, we do it totally different ways. So yeah, it's, it's pretty. Yeah, I'm a okay. little less less worried about getting hurt than he is. So uh, now that we're talking about some of these emergencies and some of these like you know scenarios maybe uh you can give us a story of one of those times uh base jumping or skydiving um where you got into the shit and y'all had to get out of it yeah perfect uh i mean the the main one for skydiving was we were doing four-way rotations uh we were jumping at the time like 90 square foot uh matrix icarus matrix parachutes so they were um cross brace vectran lined um, just really, really nasty little parachutes. And we were jumping them at 2.3, I believe at the time to one. Um, so we were doing our, our rotations, you know, so four way stacking top guy comes off. We were doing a warp maneuver off the top, which is highly loaded and we were just learning it. And so you're basically front opposite riser, opposite toggle. And then you're, you're sliding off the back of the corner of the parachute, but it's the same as like stalling a plane. It's going to have to dive to, uh, start flying again. So what you do is you use that dive to then pivot you into that parallel to the earth, you and your parachute perspective, and then you have to like just clean it up at the bottom and crash in. And we had some horrible wraps. I mean, there was, there was weekends we had two, three wraps on, in a given day, and we would all bring two rigs and we would just get on every plane. Well, on one of those, I had come off and docked and, um, and then, uh, um, um, Eric had come off and docked on me. And right when Derek, uh, Eric hit me, my reserve pin blew out and we still don't know to this day what happened. So we're, we're at 2.3 to one cross brace parachutes in a four stack. And now my 135 foot reserve shoots out the back through Eric's lines. And so you, you can hear Will and the radios yelling, Taylor cut away. And I went to go chop. And right when I went to go chop, I got sucked through the back of Eric, oh uh, through, through his lines. And then uh, that, that ripped me off of Sean's feet. And then so my matrix uh, spun a 180 and swallowed my face. So Jesus. I, couldn't, I couldn't see anything. My hand was pinned. My, my right hand was pinned by my left ear. My left hand was pinned down to my side. I couldn't see anything. And then, you know, something I'm sure we'll talk about, we've learned... <laughs> with all these wraps, the first thing you always do, and we all agree to this is you take a mental deep breath. Uh, it usually only takes milliseconds, but if you start reacting before you think you absolutely are going to do the wrong thing. Um, and we've done that numerous times. So in this case, I take a deep breath. I talked to Eric. I was like, Eric, what do you think we should do? You know, like, Hey, we've been in this situation a bunch. I didn't know my reserves out. So, um, I thought will crashed into the side of us. You know, sometimes we just end up in big wraps. And uh, Eric yells up, we're so fucked. Like, that's your reserve. And I was like, oh, God. And then I, <laughs> I, I remember what I said. I looked down at Eric and I said, hey, Eric, I think if you chop, I die. And he goes, I was thinking the same thing. He's like, see if you can steer it. So I was able to grab one line with the one finger that was pinned by my left ear. And that one line made the canopy stop turning because it had a we think it had a line over on it, the reserve, and uh, it wasn't flying straight. Um, I think Will put it best. It was it was basically making a turn about every four seconds. So it wasn't like this diving turn, but it was turning. Yeah. And um, and then Eric managed to steer us towards the lake. This happened up at 7,000 feet, and we were right over the top of the drop zone. 
And so we were able to use the uppers a little bit. And long story short, we made it uh, like 30 feet into the lake. So I landed in the lake wearing like 30 pounds of lead uh, wrapped with two parachutes. Eric's mine was around me. My reserve had a line over that I couldn't cut away um, and then crashed into the water. And then Will and, and Sean had got down early and swam and dove down with their hook knives and got me all off the bottom of the lake, basically, because oh I had sunk. God. And then, uh, yeah, we got out and... And uh, at some point, I think the USPA is going to give Eric a, a big award for that because it was a, a big, you know, you know, not being selfish and saving a teammate type story. So, yeah, yeah. pretty, pretty good. I, I'd like to ask you about some of the mindset here in emergency situations. One thing that I find incredibly unique about you is that uh, you move almost seamlessly into solving the issue after taking that mental deep breath. And you seem to have zero judgment for like what befell you to get you into that situation. And like a lot of times you'll land and like, I'll be like, my, my God, dude, did you see what happened? You know? And like my <laughs> face will be a little more like contorted than yours. You'd be like, well, like, I mean, everything just worked out. So, <laughs> but can you, can you tell me about like that part where you, you don't judge what just happened to you and you just move right into it. It's like, it's like, it's almost immaterial for you. Yeah. We've just gotten so good at these situations that, um, you know, I think it starts with people. And I think most base jumpers can say this, they knock something over on the table and they have a tendency to catch it before it hits the ground. You yeah. know, these miraculous catches that I think a lot of base jumpers, they just found themselves in these sports with these reaction times that are quick, but that's just the start, right? You grab the wrong shit when, when things go wrong and you're putting yourself in a worse situation. So um, I, I do believe, you know, I've been near death three times now to the point that, you know, I, I luckily did the right thing and managed to not die when I hit the ground. Um, and I think being faced with that and knowing that you're under the pressure of doing the right thing and knowing that your mind and your body can do the right thing is, is pretty incredible. And I think the only way you're gaining that perspective to know what to do. And I've said so many times coming out of the think tank, the number one, most valuable thing in this world is perspective. Hmm. Right. And the only way you're ever going to get perspective is a, a do it yourself, experience it, um, go learn the skills, do thousands of skydives or thousands of base jumps. Um, or you have to be a damn good listener, which most of us aren't. And, and you have to go find the epic people and pick their brain and, and gain some perspective that maybe sticks with you. So, you know, my biggest pet peeve in, in base, and I think we've talked about this numerous times is people's delays off an object. Yeah, And so what I do every time I get on an object, because I was taught this way, is I think of every way I'm going to die. I think of if I have a 90 left, a 90 right, 180, um, what am I going to do? And I, and I walk through it in my brain first. Well, this obviously makes you scared to the max, right? So you've just thought through every way this is going to go bad. So I always on every base jump take that max fear. And then as soon as I start the three, two, one, I push it down to manageable fear and then it's about just operating on the things I thought that were going to go wrong. So when you're taking a one second delay and you end up taking two, or you're saying you're taking a one second delay and you end up going, you know, throwing the pilot chute above the yeah, exit. Whole site picture changes. You're not, you're not in your plan yeah. at all. Yeah. And, um, you know, even watching some of these last Moab cliff strikes, it's like when people are opening on purpose in the armpit of the cliff, it's just like, well, you know, you didn't have to do that, you know? you can, we all love to take chances and I'm the, I'm the go low, hum it as deep as I can 
you know, guy that loves to do that, but you're giving yourself no options to not hit the cliff if you do that, you know? And so you've just got to think this stuff through. So we joke that, oh, I'm so scared. I took like half my delay or, oh man, I felt good once I was in the air. I took it twice as deep. Like, you know, that's just, you, you could do that, but you're realizing you're getting rid of your game plan. Yeah. So part of the uh, secret I'm hearing of staying calm under pressure is to actually consider what things would put you under pressure and then try and stick as precisely as one can to whatever you've planned and imagined. And then as soon as that starts going awry, you already have the contingencies like, you know, kind of mapped out intuitively. Yeah. And just knowing that you have this toolbox of tools that you've learned through perspective and everything else, you know, the good example of that was, you know, we had, we had this problem in two wrapped up, um, and again, these are base parachutes. They're just small base parachutes. A lot of, you know, what squirrels building now and the smaller stuff is just, is just crew canopies in a lot of ways. Um, so, you know, we were, we had this problem where we would have our, our toggles had nubs on them. And so sometimes when you'd go slide up and you weren't quite ready to steer, um, your toggle would get wrapped around the center A-line. And in this particular case, as I went up, I start spinning off to the side because my toggle stuck on Eric's canopy. And, um, so I reached up with my left hand to grab the line. I pulled out my hook knife and then I was going to cut the line off. And right when I went to go cut the line off, um, something broke loose and the canopy cleared, but my, uh, line twist swallowed my hand inside my riser, my left hand <laughs> with, with, a with a, a knife in my other hand. And, uh, so I'm on these 2.3 to one matrix canopies and I'm blacking out I, and I can't cut away cause my hand's stuck in the riser. So you know, my, my thinking was cut, I have a hook knife, so cut my riser off. So I tried to cut the riser off, um, right below my hand. And, um, and when I did, um, I hit the cutaway cable and broke my knife in half, which was a plastic knife. And so I had one more knife, which was metal. And then I was able to cut just a little bit higher. I cleared, I cut my risers off. And if you ever visit my house, you could see all these pieces are in a shadow box that the team put together for me. Nice. But then I bla I blacked out. And so I was spinning on my back with no AED and uh, Will was trying to do like a, a point break and, you know, try to dive bomb on me. And uh, when I woke up, I just pulled both handles and, and, you know, ended up saving myself in some way. But yeah, it's just really about having the skills that you may Jesus. need and then figuring out how to use them at the time that you've got the opportunity. I guess. Okay. Uh, Taylor, when, uh, can you give us the closest that you've come to dying while base jumping? Cause these skydiving ones are just gnarly, bro, but super you, gnarly. Yeah. Did, switch over and, uh, give me one of those ones. Are yeah, they so tamer in the base world? <laughs> Not necessarily. I mean, there's, there's, there's two early on, I was doing a, um, a tard and I wanted to Mary Poppins it. And, uh, I was at the bridge out at, uh, uh, Twin Falls and I Mary Poppins did and let go of it. And I had line overs, you know, line groups over, like nothing was right. Uh, hit the water super hard. Brandon chance, uh, took off all of his, uh, baggy clothes, dove in, managed to swim under the water, cut away my rig. And then uh, get me to shore. So that was the closest I've died, almost died in base jumping. But then uh, Spence Bisley had a good one out in China. Um, he wanted to go do a cutaway off of the glass bridge. The uh, GoPro bomb squad was filming us uh, because this was going to be kind of an epic jump. Uh, he went off uh, on a secondary rig. And then I went off and I top docked him like in crew. <laughs> 
um, with base canopies and then um, kicked in and then flew him over the landing. And he went to chop and, uh, um, you know, cutaways in base just hardly ever work. Yeah, I know, right? Uh, look at Andy <laughs> Lewis. Look at look at just anybody. And uh, so, of, cor- of course, his left riser totally disconnects. His right riser, um, the first ring disconnects. And then the yellow cord rifles through the medium ring. And it's only in there like a quarter of an inch. We can oh, see it man. In the video. So he catches his left riser on his left hand. The right riser is is stuck and won't come off. And so, yeah, he would have died. You know, if, yeah. if we didn't come up with this stupid plan of me top docking him because I was going to land his parachute on the on the barge and his parachute wasn't going to get lost or wet. Um, so we ended up having to do this two stack landing in the Yancey River and this deep canyon and and ended up landing close to shore and had some Chinese military guys thrown on us to save us, but they couldn't swim. And, you know, it's just an epic adventure, but that was Spence almost dying. So yeah, it happens. Man. Wow. That, yeah. That's a gnarly one to think about. I didn't consider that until you actually said that. Like if you hadn't come up with that crazy plan to top dock him and then you would have cut it away and just had half Streamer. a parachute flapping and then trying to pitch something into that, like it, it is highly likely that he would have just died, man. That's crazy. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So, uh, on that note, do you have any notable learnings from your base antics over the years? Because I think of all the people that I know, you've done some of the most variable and like wild, like none of your jumps seem to be the same. They all like involve some kind of weird game or like this new thing that you're trying, <laughs> like, uh, any notable learnings from the base antics? Yeah. I mean, a, a couple, I mean, because I was doing my master's degree and then wingsuiting, you know, I have about 150 wingsuit base jumps early 2007 to 2011 timeframe. And, um, you know, just learning how inefficient those wings were and you could get them flying only if you had a perfect exit and then watching the wingsuit technology just change over time, um, has been really, um, amazing to me and, um, being a part of the earlier part of that. And then now realizing where it's at, um, has been something that has really changed my perspective on what's coming from the sport, from parachutes and all that kind of stuff. Um, when it came to, you know, what we were learning out at Rubido, um, the main thing that I, that I like people to know is, is it doesn't matter where you exit, like how far off on a static line, but it certainly helps if you want to try to hit balloons or if you want to try to land in a pool, or if you want to try to steer your parachute as fast as possible, you're going to want to jump behind the center, the center line of your parachute, uh, which is basically basic understanding. So, you know, if your parachutes, you know, four feet, you know, deep, then uh, you need to jump within two feet. Uh, and the reason of that is, is because as that parachute opens, your body's going to be either behind or in front of the center line. If yeah. it's behind the center line, your, your front risers are weighted, your rear risers are not. So, so, and then the other way is the opposite. So you end up in these situations where you get access to a, a certain control quicker if you do something um, more specific. Can we so, dive into this a little bit for a second, uh, that exit uh, position I think is important. Um, and uh, let's get into forward aft for a second because there's an ongoing debate uh, of people exiting on static lines, jumping as far as they can and people exiting more in a upright position to be closer to center line. So like, what did you learn from all those accuracy contests out there uh, when it comes to, you know, the jumping procedure? 
Yeah, and, and it was early in my career when Marcus came out with a, a mojo that was packed at Bridge Day, and um, you know it was packed, you know, quickly for a water jump. It was at least slider off. And uh, when we were out at Rubido, way before we thought through all this stuff, he uh, ran off and dove off the exit, like perfect base exit. And um, he was as far out as he could get. And as that parachute opened, it now opens way behind him, right? And so as he's swinging back, he happened to just perfect timing pop his toggles when he was perfectly swung behind the parachute and the parachute was diving. And when he popped his toggles, he went straight into the ground. He lost his eye. He broke every bone in his oh. face. He broke he broke his legs. He broke a bunch of stuff. You know, oh. it was before any mustache boogie. We had already had a helicopter rescue out at Rubido, which is how I ended up meeting the police. And that led to how we ended up parting out there. But, um, you know, that was the start of it. And then when when Will and I started doing these competitions, we started realizing it was giving us a huge advantage to exit in a stand as close to the cliff as possible. So that when you, when, when, as soon as that parachute's open, you've got those rears weighted and you can steer them, you can start doing stuff. Right. And here's a fun joke that, that I think Will and I, and maybe three other people understand. Um, if you want to kick a clown or if you want to hit the slip inside, or if you want to do any of our crazy dive on things, um, um, activities that instant, when you're opening and your rears are, are weighted, your fronts are not. So you can grab them and pull them down to your belly button and hold them. And that parachute will, will think that's the opening pro protocol. And so you could end up in a dive and I'll show this to anybody that jumps Rubido with me. I can dive unbelievably quick on Rubido on a 180 foot cliff, like extremely quick. Can you walk and it doesn't matter which parachute for that? Yeah. So if you, if you jump in a stand behind the center line of the parachute, and then as the parachute's opening, you grab your toggles quick and then your front risers down to your waist. Then that parachute will take its first breath straight down. Uh -huh. and, then, and then you can take all that speed and transition it to a sweet kick of a clown or hitting the slip and slide. But again, you learn this in crew, right? Yeah. So similar parachutes, you know, most people when we're landing in crew, they, they don't understand that, that it flies flat just like a base canopy does. And so to fly like a natural parachute, like a Sabre 2 or, or anything like that, you have to pull some front risers to get it to actually have the, the dive that profile that it wants to be a regular parachute. So that's why you front riser, you snap them, and that pulls you straight, and then you go to flare with your toggles. So you could do the same thing with a base canopy. You could front riser dive to five feet, and I'll, I'll happily show anybody this, and then you snap them. Just lit them, lit them up as fast as you can, kills all the performance of the parachute, flattens it out, and then you can go to brakes. Yeah, um, I've seen this air brake maneuver, and uh, I've tried it yeah, skydiving. Will and I have both landed yeah. with no toggles, and yeah. you, can land, you can land on your feet tiptoe. Yeah, yeah, I tried it skydiving. I haven't uh, built the courage enough to try it uh, base jumping yet. Yeah. <laughs> 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 uh, so it, let's talk about how you fly parachutes because it's rad and I think it challenges a lot of common wisdoms in the sport. Um, can you like say a little bit about um, challenging those common wisdoms about how to fly parachutes and what inputs are quote unquote correct uh, for mm -hmm. certain scenarios? 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, just some sea stories from from skydiving. And again, this translates straight into base. So so when you come out and learn and crew, you'll understand how to do this stuff and uh, and what it is. So, you know, we used to have fun at the end of jumps where we would start right next to each other and then we would rear rise or stall. Like don't ever toggle stall, especially with elliptical parachutes and some other stuff. Rear rise or stall, lit up on one side just a little bit, face each other. You control the depth of the stall, it controls hot whether you're forward or back. And uh, Will and I can sit there and kick feet, you know, even if we're on 2.3 to one matrix canopies, right? So you can bring that to base. And so, you know, when I jumped the glass bridges, I was just trying to have fun. So I'm pulling it down in a deep stall at the rear risers. And then I snap one of the risers up and leave the other one down. And you'll go into this infinite spiral. It'll just spin you like a top. It won't kick you out from under the parachute at all. And the only way you get out of it is you just blow your toggles. And then you're, you're out flying normal stuff. Um, when we taught Jimmy and Marta the uh, warp and we're like, Hey, if you, if you want a skill that is um, fantastic at kind of getting down without going out, warp your parachute, but you do have to realize and practice high that out of a warp, you have to dive. So as long as you, you time it to where you come out of the warp at say 50 feet, and then you use that dive to generate the energy to land then you're totally fine. Um, but it's what I laugh all the time. Will any company, let's just leave this company agnostic. Any company could come up with a new parachute and will can test jump it for videos and land it in ways that everybody will buy that parachute. I am convinced of that. Does that mean that parachute works for everybody? It's, 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 it's out. It's, it doesn't matter. My whole point is it doesn't matter. Uh, Will and I, and mostly Will can land any parachute dodgy or not, um, and figure out a way to get it in. So yeah, your toggle turns are great, but they put you in a dive, right? Your, your brake turns are awesome. They keep you flat, but they're slower. Um, you know, so you're going to, you're going to lose more altitude to use one, but they're going to, they're going to turn you flat versus diving you. Um, all these things matter very, very much. Um, some of the stuff that we do also in skydiving that I think is, is relevant, like I, I blew up a big, um, I think it was a 37 way, uh, skydive three weekends ago. I thought I did. So I was flying the wing. I was coming in on this, on this, uh, big canopy 1.3 to one. And I, every time I'd let go of all controls, I'd go really high on this diamond. But the only thing I can do to get, stay down was hold a warp. So I'm holding this heavy warp. But the problem is when I let go of the warp, I'm going to smash and crash into these 30 some people that are already built waiting for me to dock. So, um, so I come in and the only thing that I can do is snap the warp, which basically kills performance in the parachute because the parachute never likes snap maneuvers, right? So if you snap anything, it basically goes into, um, like mode and that helps you in a lot of ways. And right when I was coming into dock, as soon as I touched it, the whole thing imploded. Like we, we ended up, I think with five cutaways, it was my world record. I ended up catching three, um, free bags in one skydive. So I didn't even know where to put them anymore. I put one in my pants, one in my shirt. I had one in my teeth and uh, basically landed with three free bags. But you know, when you get in these big way crew canopies things, you realize what your parachutes controls do. And as soon as you base jump, you realize it's exactly the same. So before we leave this last topic, I'd love to touch on something that you kind of mentioned. Um, and actually I've, I've touched on it before in this podcast too. It's about open-mindedness and uh, optimization. 
it feels like your approach to a lot of these questions about figuring things out and like what's the right way versus the wrong way is to say that everything is optimized for something and like mm -hmm. every input is good for something. Uh, can you touch on your like mindset of not wrong? Yes. Yes. I, I like to use parachutes as an example. Every parachute is really good at something. It's, it's not that there's many really crappy parachutes made these days. So, you know, you pick any one and you can fly the crap out of it usually in one good way. Um, and I kind of treat all decision-making that way. It's like, there's, there's always something that's going to be the best thing you can do. Um, the other stuff may work. Um, it's not the end of the world if you, if you do it wrong, but you know, you just think about parachutes, like you, you take a, um, a vented, um, slatted, um, parachute, like an OSP or outlaw, and you can sit there and, and get yourself out of trouble. Like you're coming in deep on a landing, you're high. You can just go into big, deep breaks and both those parachutes, you can actually land, you know, minus any wind, you can land, you know, in three quarter breaks without breaking yourself. You know, but do you take any of the other parachutes and you try to do that and you're going to break yourself, yeah. right? So, so, so it makes your point just to think about this in terms of parachutes. Most people don't know what their parachute does. They bought it because they saw Will Kiddo land it like so beautifully that, uh, <laughs> that there's no way they can ever mess themselves up. But, uh, you know, like I challenge most people, go take it um, out of the plane and before you pop your toggles, Get on your rears and see if you can back that parachute up and do a whole loop around the drop zone. And I can I can promise you, ninety nine percent of the base community has never practiced this skill. Yeah, and it is extremely valuable. Extremely, right? Extreme. Then pop your toggles and see if you can back the the canopy up on either toggles or risers. Yeah, you know, and start just figuring out what happens with all this stuff. It's the best time to do it is to your point earlier is not when you're facing a wall. Totally. And you're like, oh shit. <laughs> yeah, I, I I have so much comfort jumping in Moab these days, knowing that I know exactly where to trim my risers or toggles if I need to back up and turn. Like I don't have to think about it. I don't have to consider whether I'm under inputting or over inputting. Like I just know exactly where that is. And so like I, I jump off of these cliffs with a lot more comfort. In the worst case, I'm facing the wall. It's like kind of no big deal. Uh, I also require like that any, if anyone learns with me how to like base jump that they know how to do that. Like we go to the drop zone yeah. and, and do that maneuver because to be honest, I just don't want to pick people up. You know, I'd rather them like succeed. <laughs> and I think yeah, knowing no that one doubt. thing is super easy to, to know and like, man, market markedly more success if you know that. Yeah. Like Will and I are talking now and most ideas that I bring to him, I, he says, that's stupid, Taylor. And then I start <laughs> thinking about it more. And then, and then he's like, maybe, so I, I've been thinking about for a long time, trying to do a rear riser 360 on Rubido. So basically jumping off rear riser, facing the cliff, getting away from the cliff and then riding the, the, um, the, basically the dive out of that. And it's so close to being the exact height where something like that can work. But again, you'd have to go take it out of a plane and just over and over and over again, start figuring out, you know, how, what's the quickest way to flat turn 360 on a parachute and then how much altitude are you losing on that? So, you know, if you, if anybody has seen any of our stunts that, that we do, it's, it's, it's always very well thought out. You know, recently, uh, Will and I took two prototype squirrel parachutes, you know, down to 200 foot on a down plane with a 20 foot, um, strap. Uh, loaded with fireworks into Chicks Rock. And 
you know, it was so fun because that those canopies were so big and they dove so efficiently that, um, yeah, we, we made for a great show because we were going so slow in this perfect downplane and we were able to take it down to 200 feet and, you know, blow the strap off and then be able to turn 90 and land right where all the people were. So, you know, super fun stuff. Can you, uh, while we're talking about risky stuff that you've done with Will, can you tell us a little bit about analyzing risk from an objective perspective? I know that <laughs> you are a scientist by trade and also one by heart. And I think it's a process that a lot of us have like kind of wet left by the wayside, you know, back in fifth grade or wherever, like we actually did quote unquote science last. Um, anyway, can you, uh, hit us with, uh, you know, objective perspective of, of risk, how you calculate margin. Yeah. You know, I think this is fantastic conversation. Uh, I'm dealing with it within an AV as well. You know, it's like, um, one way we deal with, you know, a lot of data, um, in the Navy, or you think of Twitter is you just make it, the algorithms better and better and better and better. Right. And, and so you just basically, you use the expertise within the, um, the current way of doing things and you just get more efficient at it. And with the data perspective, the other idea is you make the data quality better, right? And so this is the conversation that Twitter and us and everybody's all having now. Bring that into base jumping and it's the same conversation. Um, it's easy to learn base jumping from the experts before you. And, um, and that's kind of that idea of just making the algorithm better and better. You know, you're just, you're getting more efficient at doing things the same way you used to do it. Um, the other side of it is you bring more data into base jumping. You, you bring data in in an objective way and you start using that data to re-quantify what's going on. Now, the manufacturers are doing a lot of this, but because they're in comp competition, they're not sharing, right? But this is, this is absolutely a way to do this. So I've kind of, you know, I, I like when people come from other sports. I like when people come from academia or they're a doctor or all this kind of stuff and they come into base jumping and they bring that perspective. And for me, it was fluid mechanics and it was doing urban flow dispersion modeling in a water channel and basically putting pilot shoots in the water channel and, and, um, and then figuring out how uh, semi-rigid wings work. And, you know, today there's people like, you know, Mitchell is, is doing this, Will Mitchell. Um, people are really starting to try to figure out how to quantify what happens with parachute openings or quantify what happens with, you know, slider designs and, and how many grommets the slider has. Um, there is absolute room in base jumping and skydiving for massive improvement to everything. But we've got to start thinking objectively about everything. And, and not just believing that that's the way to do things because more than half the community says it's the way to do things. Yeah. Um, it's just, it, it, there's so much opportunity to make things better, but people have to start thinking objectively. What do you think of the statement? Uh, why change? This is the way we've always done it. You know, like when somebody says like, why are you doing that way? Well, this is the way we've always done it. Yeah. That's it's, it's fascinating to me because um, it's not scientific to say that. Right. I mean, it's like, so, so you either believe in science or not. Right. So it's like the scientist uh, in me says, you know, let's, let's draw another hypothesis and let's test it, you know, and I think that's what Will Mitchell's trying to do. And there's others that are trying to do the same thing. Um, I think there is often a lot of truth and we've always been doing it that way. So let's do it. But I think that's sometimes can get us doing really poor things. So just recently I switched to, um, um, doing a primary stow, like the last two jumps, my first 1100 jumps, I did not ever do a primary stow. Um, 
but I've been using a primary stow in every crew jump I've ever done. So I, I told Will, I said, Hey, I just switched to doing primary stow. He's like, why are you doing this? I was like, I don't know. You know, I, I've hit an antenna. I've had a line over, um, you know, but I'm like, I think I'm gonna change. I think it makes sense, you know? And, and, um, it's those kind of thinking, like I've always done it this way. Why should I change? Yeah. But on the other end, I've always done it in crew and it's always helped me, you know? So like, maybe I should change to something that is more the wisdom of the, of the mass, um, because there's not any proof otherwise. So, yeah, it seems like there's a lot of, uh, you know, room for people to like do any random thing just based on their own experience because the base rates just aren't very good you know like no (laughs) if somebody's done something a strange way uh for like a thousand jumps you know and it's worked out every single time like all we can say is that like well at best like we're at one in a thousand like you know, that's, yep. that's really not like a great, like if, if that thing might potentially kill you, like I'd want like better odds than one in a thousand. <laughs> no doubt. So, so here's an example of like, you know, how you can use, you know, data to your, your, your benefit. And I've, I've got my favorite thing I talk about work and, and that's the perception of safety. And this idea that whenever someone has the belief that they are safe for any reason, right? Uh, my favorite example nowadays is we take so much active shooter training that most humans um, have this belief that they're now safer to an active shooter because they've had all this training, right? But the the truth is that's not true. The The truth is you've actually now kind of all behaved the same way. So in some ways you're more, more susceptible. <laughs> so, so my, and I think it's been long enough that I can tell the story, but, but, you know, like, eight, nine years ago, you know, I wanted to jump Irvine because it was known as the most safe city in the United States. So I was like, wow, this is awesome. I'm running the predictive analysis, human behavior group for the Navy. This is going to be a great opportunity. So I went over there and I sat in front of a building. I saw this security guard walk around. He pulls out this little key card. He beeps it. I run up to that little node that's on the middle of a brick wall and I get the company name. I visit the company the next day. I was like, Hey, I'm an engineer. I work for UC Riverside. Um, can you share me what this is? And they're like, yeah, you know, instead of you having to hire the perfect bad guy catching security guard, which is hard because a good chunk of security guards have uh, issues with drugs and some other things. And so all of a sudden they're like, no, you can force anybody you hire to the perfect bad guy catching behavior. And I was like, that's amazing. Can you share what other buildings you do this on? I would go love to see it in practice. Yeah. So they gave me a list of five buildings that <laughs> night. I went out with a piece of paper. I still have this piece of paper up in my wall. And I wrote down ins and out times for every node on every wall of the building. So basically I knew exactly where the security guards were at any given time, but they had promised the company that they had this super high perception of safety because these security guards would not let anything get by them. Right. And so Brandon Chance and I in one night managed to jump four different buildings and never ran, never ran. (laughs) You're like, no, that guy's five minutes away. Exactly. He's going to be right. Yeah, we'd be on top and he's like, he's like, I want to jump. And I was like, no, 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 no. We got to wait another three minutes and then, and then we'll be fine. Yeah. Just wait. Yeah. John Smith is just about to come. (laughs) Take that perception of safety conversation to your own practices and what you think you're, you've got figured out and you're probably vulnerable as shit in terms of those actual skills because you're not testing yourself and challenging yourself to be better all the time. You continue to be a scary person to talk to Taylor. Uh, man, we got to move into some personal questions before we round this whole thing out. If you don't mind a topic shift. Yep. So 
I know that uh, why you got into base jumping in the first place, but you've also been in it for so many years. I've got to ask, how has your motivation changed? Oh, yeah, that's a good one. You know, um, I'm glad I survived the balls to the wall period of uh, of my early career. And and uh, for anybody that wants to look it up, balls to the wall is actually a steam locomotive term. It has nothing to do with the male genitalia. Are you sure? So uh, because oh, I'm absolutely, are you absolutely sure? sure. Are, are you sure it's not from uh, airplane world? Because I've heard both stories. Nope. I've heard stories from from train people, and I've heard stories from uh, air force people that it's from either train. Oh, or it could plane. be, but either way, it's not a sexual uh, conversation. So I no. think that's perfect. So I, you know, the early balls of the wall period for me was like, I barely survived, you know, it was, uh, you know, wingsuiting cliffs when wingsuits didn't even work very well and ACE parachutes. And, you know, I'm just glad I made it through that. And then, um, and then what happened was, you know, Tessa, my daughter, she was born in 2011. At that point I had been jumping five years. And, um, I made a promise to her mom that I would, uh, quit wingsuiting and I'd quit doing flips and base jumping. Right. So my, my theory was I would, I would back off of the leading edge of the dodgy stuff and then, and, but, and then, and then basically be safe. But if anybody's known me, I've never backed off on, on pushing the edge and being safe. So I've just done it in different ways. That is really fun for me. And, um, so obviously my jump numbers have gone, you know, here or there. Um, but nowadays, you know, I like doing really, really technical urban projects. Um, so, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll jump with, uh, Jamie a lot and go do things that are exceptionally challenging. And I really like that. Uh, nowadays I've been back on Rubido, just trying new stuff and, um, uh, trying to get a big party to go out there. I love Moab. Um, but really I think I've settled into what I really enjoy, which is all forms of parachute flying. And as long as I'm, you know, here's a funny thing. I could be less active in base and still be current because I'm doing so many crew jumps on the weekends Yeah. and Will and I kind of joke, it's the same currency. I, I can base jump after four months of not putting a parachute on and, and be more current than I was before because I've been, you know, going gnarly on, on crew jumps. One one so, thing that I'm definitely taking away from this interview is that everybody who wants to be excellent at base jumping should take up crew. Absolutely. And it is coming back. And like I said, raw dogs, just search them, find out what part of the country you're in. Uh, we have a culture where you don't have to pay for anything other than your own jump to, to come in. We have all the gear. We'll loan it to you. Uh, I'm widely known for getting everybody a down plane on their first crew jump with me. Yes. So, and I usually don't even tell you that's going to happen. And, uh, you don't really have to help me all that much, but I could get us in a down plane and it's usually really fun. Yes. So, uh, <laughs> moving on, um, over all of the years of parachute sports, you know, loving and enjoying flying your parachute, what have you gained from the sports and what have they taken from you? Oh man, everything. The, the answer to both of those is everything. Um, yeah, you know, I've learned more from being in parachute sports and this perspective of risk um, that I ha than I have in anything else that has valued my my life, that has made brought you know um, joy to my life and and allowed me to see the world in a in a bigger way. For most people that don't know me, I smile a lot. Um, I'm I'm very up energy. I've been destroyed so often, like you know, I've had major injuries, I've had divorces. You know, I've, I, I've, I've gone through a lot of the bad stuff, but I've always just bounced back so resilient. Um, and that's because I've got these amazing friends that, that, 
you know, you're one of them, Matt. And it's just like, you know, we could call each other anytime and just be like, dude, I'm in, in bad sorts and I need some help. And, and, uh, we're all there for each other. You know, I love that we party at the highest levels. I love that we, um, that we're there for each other when the lows hit the lows. Um, I think on the negative side, I have, um, you know, I talk to the, my therapist about this all the time. I I've lost my ability to, to feel hurt and feel sorrow when someone close to me dies. Um, there's been, you know, a handful of really, really bad ones that have happened in my life. Um, you know, really, really, really bad ones. And, and those hit me so hard. And I know you've probably been through something similar. Yeah. And then now I'm just kind of numb. And, um, I've gotten to the point now where, you know, if I'm not super close to someone that died, I don't even pay attention to it. Yeah. You know, I'll read the report, learn what I need to learn from it, but I'm not, I'm not even playing the game because, um, emotionally it's just been hard. Like I said, we lost Ken Oka on our skydiving team really early on. Um, he was caught in between two parachutes, his and another one in a down plane that he couldn't get away from. And you guys Will chased him to like, the ground on this, right? Yeah. Will and I were diving on him, trying to tangle ourselves with him. And I remember I clipped him twice. I think Will clipped him once. Man. The whole thinking was if we just, if we wad up with him, we can, we can somehow fix the situation. And, uh, and I remember the last swipe I took was somewhere around 900 feet. And, um, and then I was on a crew canopy that lands like shit. And I tried to land in the backyard where he impacted and I blasted through the fence and, um, ended up cutting away. And I was on giving him CPR within, I think it was within 30 seconds of him hitting the ground. Will was on me within like a minute and, um, and yeah, Oka, Oka died. And, you know, it's been just story after story like that, where, you know, people are just doing the, the thing they love the most and, and they just go out. And I think as, as humans, we have a hard time putting up with this much loss and, uh, and that makes it really hard, but yeah. I'll clear out that story by just saying, when I went to the think tank, you know, the, the head of the Navy told me I will not base jump in this job. And, uh, and it was because they knew that I had base jumped the Hilton Waikiki and that I had got. <laughs> all the mathematicians in the Navy that were working for me kicked out of Hilton properties for five years. And, <laughs> um, I lost the GS level and I got, I got sent home without pay. And, uh, I got a letter that said I embarrassed the Navy and it was all, it was all horrible. But, uh, but yeah, you know, the perspective I've gained by, by going through that, getting in the deepest of deepest troubles, then getting onto this think tank and, and then coming out of that with the perspective to start a company, which is my company, Burble, and trying to help kids with autism sleep better. You know, it's like life's just all about, you know, comebacks. It's all yeah. about comebacks. And so, man. you know, just keep coming back is what I've learned. The comebacks, man. Yeah. So I, I have to agree with you. I, I feel the same way when uh, people I don't know go in, but... I'm not sure that it's uh, a numbness and uh, and not like a scale issue. Like, for instance, both of us have seen good friends of ours die like right in front of us. You know, that's mm -hmm. like that's my new like extreme marker for, you know, the the emotion connected to tragedy, you know. And yep. if if you don't, you know, if somebody dies and I don't see it, like that's already like halfway down the scale towards not feeling anything. If I didn't really yep. know them and I didn't see them, then it's like, did that even happen? Yeah, I, I agree with you. I mean, I think it's, I, I had to look at my logbook yesterday to think it, but by the time I had 40 base jumps, I had already watched two people die Yeah, and um, like been on the load. 
And I was like, what the heck? Like, it was just crazy. You know, I was announcing out at bridge day and then the guy that was so high that he left his pull up cord on his uh, pilot shoot out at twin falls. And it's just like, God. And so it's constantly just putting it in perspective and just making sure you're, you're like you said, you you're scaling it that 10 out of 10 when it deserves that. And it's a one out of 10 when it doesn't. So you can preserve, you know, whatever you've got, but it it's hard. Well, Maybe we can maybe we can end on perspective, uh, and you can give us a perspective on your career in total. And uh, the question is like, what would you like somebody in the sport and outside of the sport to take away from them if they could see, you know, like a montage of your entire career? Yeah, just have fun. Like we said, it's about it's about these small competitions and this small. Um, you know, really fall in love with the sport and don't just do it because, um, because it gives you some other shallow benefit. And, and that's why I think that every, every base jumper needs to go learn crew, like get passionate about it. You know, every base jumper needs to get at least a few lessons in on being a rigger. You know, every base jumper needs to fly at least a couple different parachutes. Like, like if we're going to be the epitome of the highest level of this sport, then you should be the epitome of the knowledge of, of, of everything that led you to that point. And I don't think we teach that way. Um, yeah. I'm not against FJCs, but the FJCs have a tendency to drop a whole bunch of people off with the basic skills, but they have the expectation they know everything they need. Right. And, and that discrepancy is, is, is causing a lot of problems in our community right now. And that old school mentoring mentality is a problem. And what I found in my own job and other things is mentors are hard to come by because the best mentors don't want to be mentors because they don't think they're good enough at teaching. I've never mentored somebody. Whereas, whereas the ones that are offering up mentorship are probably not going to teach you the most that you need to learn. So we have a culture issue just like everybody does. And what I say is just go learn as much as you can. And if everybody could commit to a couple crew jumps this year and, and some reserve packing practice, they'll uh, they'll be a lot smarter about a lot in base jumping. Well, we're certainly going to put all of the links that you mentioned uh, in the description so people can find them. And uh, if you can find Taylor Cole and his crew out in Southern California, please do. Um, with uh, that being said, Taylor, thanks for joining us, man. Yeah, this has been great. Hopefully yeah. everybody saw this as something useful. So come visit anytime. Yeah. Um, Catch you in the funny pages. Yeah, buddy. Thanks for joining us for another episode. If you have any comments or suggestions for future episodes, we would love to hear from you. You can find us on Instagram at exitpoint.podcast. Big shout out to Mark Stockwell, our sound mixer and co-producer for being part of this project. Tune in next time or come find us on the Exit Point.